You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. for shell vulnerability is trouble and its remediation isn't going to be quick or easy. In India, Prime Minister Modi's Twitter account was hijacked. Official Brazilian COVID vaccination databases are stolen and rendered unavailable. Extortionists claim to have taken sensitive proprietary R&D information from Volvo. Phishing sites appear and vanish in a matter of hours. Rick the Toolman Howard expands his cast of characters. Robert M. Lee from Dragos shines a light on solar storms and risk management. And sentence is passed in a case related to the Kelohos botnet. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, December 13th, 2021. Organizations and security agencies have spent the weekend grappling with a vulnerability that's proved to have wide-ranging implications. At the end of last week, a vulnerability in the Java Log4j library was disclosed. Now generally being called Log4Shell, a vulnerability in Apache's Log4j library that's formally tracked as CVE 2021-44228, The effects are serious, widespread, and difficult to mitigate. NIST describes the problem as an attacker who can control log messages or log message parameters can execute arbitrary code loaded from LDAP servers when message lookup substitution is enabled. The problem lies in the lookup function, security firm Sophos explains. Apache describes the function and how it might be exploited in its logging services blog, The vulnerability could give attackers a means of controlling a server, executing whatever code they might choose to execute. In its useful overview of how exploitation works, security firm Sygenta credits researchers at Alibaba with discovering the flaw in November and then responsibly disclosing it to Apache. That's why upgrades to Log4j were out by the time the vulnerability was disclosed last week. The Wall Street Journal compares Log4Shell in scope and risk to 2014's Heartbleed vulnerability, and it's probably an apt comparison. 
Log4Shell has by now moved beyond the proof-of-concept stage and is being actively exploited in the wild. Widespread exploitation appears to have begun only after the vulnerability was publicly disclosed, but researchers at both Cloudflare and Cisco Talos say they saw signs of an exploit in the wild some nine days before the disclosure. It was minor and not widespread, but someone was on to the vulnerability before proofs of concept were out. Since the disclosure last week, white hats have developed proofs of concept and black hats have weaponized the vulnerability and used their exploits in the wild. So, exploitation of what amounts to a software supply chain issue isn't unified or systematic, the work of any single threat actor, but is rather distributed and opportunistic. All of the five eyes have issued warnings about Log4Shell, as have other allied cybersecurity services. Their advice is consistent, the flaw is serious, and enterprises should take immediate steps to mitigate their risk. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly on Saturday wrote, in part, quote, This vulnerability, which is being widely exploited by a growing set of threat actors, presents an urgent challenge to network defenders given its broad use. End users will be reliant on their vendors, and the vendor community must immediately identify, mitigate, and patch the wide array of products using this software. Vendors should also be communicating with their customers to ensure end users know that their product contains this vulnerability and should prioritize software updates. End quote. Britain's National Cybersecurity Center warns that it's detecting active scanning for the vulnerability and singles out five Apache frameworks as particularly at risk Apache Struts 2, Apache Solar, Apache Druid. Apache Flink, and Apache Swift. The Australian Cybersecurity Center tells affected organizations that it's standing by and available to render assistance. The Canadian Center for Cybersecurity urges immediate patching, and a number of Canadian government sites are taken offline. The reaction was especially quick and thorough in Quebec, where the province's Ministry for Government Digital Transformation has, according to CBC, shut down almost 4,000 websites as a precautionary measure. The responsible minister, Eric Kerr, explained the decision, saying, We were facing a threat with a critical level of 10 out of 10. According to the new protocols by the head of government information security, that rating automatically calls for the closure of the targeted systems. CertNZ in New Zealand is also urging their users to protect themselves. Germany's BSI in its alert emphasizes both the severity of the risk and prospect of remote code execution. The BSI rates the risk red, that is, of the highest severity. France's CERT-FR warns that the issue is already undergoing exploitation in the wild and urges users to upgrade to the latest version of Log4j as soon as possible. The Swiss government computer emergency response team, like the NCSC, offers advice on what to do when patching is impossible or impractical. It adds a list of indicators of compromise, and it also has a clear description of the exploitation kill chain that defenders will find useful. And the Netherlands' NCSC has posted a comprehensive list of affected software. The CyberWire has a summary of the vulnerability and how organizations are responding to it on our website. Elsewhere in cyberspace, the usual crimes, vandalism, and larceny, both petty and grand, continue. 
Indian authorities are investigating the hijacking of Prime Minister Modi's Twitter account, the Wall Street Journal reports. The motive appears to have been relatively frivolous. The attackers tweeted, obviously falsely, that India had declared Bitcoin its official currency. India has, in fact, been considering imposing some stringent regulations on the trading and use of altcoin generally. As the journal writes, quote, The hack came after the Indian government last month said it would consider a bill to prohibit private cryptocurrencies in India, with some exceptions, and create an official digital currency to be issued by the Reserve Bank of India, according to a parliamentary bulletin, end quote. Brazil's Ministry of Health has sustained a significant data breach, according to Reuters. The attack hit Friday, and police are investigating. A group calling itself the Lapsus Group claimed responsibility, telling the ministry that its data had been copied and then deleted. Quote, Contact us if you want the data back, they said. The Brazilian government confirmed that the data had indeed been lost and said that it's working to restore it. The affected data that has drawn the most attention involves COVID-19 vaccination records. Volvo disclosed Friday that it had sustained a cyber attack. The company said, quote, Volvo Cars has become aware that one of its file repositories has been illegally accessed by a third party. Investigations so far confirm that a limited amount of the company's R&D property has been stolen during the intrusion. Volvo Cars has earlier today concluded, based on information available, that there may be an impact on the company's operation. Quote. The threat actors were apparently intellectual property thieves, bleeping computer reports. The record assesses the theft as directed toward collecting ransom. A gang, Snatch, known to engage in such extortion, has claimed responsibility, listing Volvo among its victims in a November 25th post on their dark web site. Since then, they've published samples of what they allege are stolen Volvo data. One of the difficulties of tracking down ransomware gangs and other criminal operators is the mayfly-like lifespan of their phishing pages. Security firm Kaspersky looked at such pages over the summer and found that phishing sites are surprisingly ephemeral. Quote, The bulk of phishing pages were only active for less than 24 hours. In the majority of cases, the page was already inactive within the first few hours of its life. End quote. Blink and you'll miss them. And finally, Security Week reports that Oleg Koshkin a Russian national residing in Estonia who was convicted in June on U.S. charges related to his operation of cryptor services that assisted the operators of the Kelahos botnet, has been sentenced. Mr. Koshkin received a four-year prison sentence for one count of conspiracy to commit computer fraud and abuse and one count of computer fraud and abuse. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. 
Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And it's always my pleasure to welcome back to the show the CyberWire's own Chief Security Officer and Chief Analyst, Rick Howard. Rick, great to have you back. Hey, Dave. So for your seventh season of CSO Perspectives, and let me just quick aside here, I can't believe we're seven seasons already. Oh, oh my hell, God. The time, time does fly, right? <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> so for season seven, you have introduced your Rick the Toolman series, which is, of course, is modeled after one of your favorite TV shows from back in the 90s. Home Improvement. Uh, I think like a lot lot of folks, I, I love that show. I still can't help myself whenever I have a home improvement project. I walk around the house going, <laughs> but uh, since you started it, I know I've, I've wondered along with a lot of our listeners who your sidekick was going to be. I mean, after all, on the Tim the Toolman uh, show, he had Al Borland. He did. Um, yeah. So are you going to designate an official sidekick like they did on Home Improvement? Well, it's funny you mention that, Dave, because you're not alone. Uh, the CSO Perspectives mailroom was flooded with that question and a gaggle <laughs> of suggestions about who uh -huh. it should be. So we're not the only ones. That's kind of nice. <laughs> okay. So if that kind of esoteric TV trivia from the 90s is your thing, download the last episode of the season and find out who it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, the holidays are upon us and... Uh, this week's episode is not only the last of the season, it's also the last of the year before we take a much-needed break, as I like to say, our long winter's nap for the holidays. <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, 2021 seems like it has gone by extremely fast, right? Yeah. With all these yeah. great shows that we produce, but simultaneously, it has dragged on on a snail's pace with, like, COVID stuff and political upheaval. Yeesh, what a year, right? But <laughs> yeah. So I just want to say, Dave, that these past 12 months working with you, okay, on this daily podcast and Hacking Humans Goes to the Movies and all the CyberWire Xs that we've done together, that brings a little joy into the world for our listeners and has been a real big highlight for me. So, and I thank you for it, my friend. Happy holidays, and I will see you in 2022. Well, thank you, Rick, and a heartfelt thanks to you as well. I have to say it was... Uh Really exciting when uh, we heard that the uh, opportunity was coming up that maybe you could join us here at the CyberWire, and uh, I, I really think it's been great. So uh, on behalf of 
all the rest of us, what a great addition to the team you've been, and we're all looking forward to what is yet to come. Well, thank you, sir, and it's been a highlight, So, like I said. So thank you very much for accepting me and giving me a freedom to do all this, and we will do it again next year. All right, right back at you. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, it is always great to have you back. You know, Probably once or twice a year, I see a story come by, and uh, one from Wired came by, uh, written by Lily Hay Newman, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, as a journalist. This article is titled, A Bad Solar Storm Could Cause an Internet Apocalypse. You know, these come by uh, once or twice a year, and I just wanted to sort of check in with you to calibrate how big a deal is something like this. I think Lily did a great job on the article for, for my two cents and whatever it's worth, yeah. um, where it was very measured. And usually what turns me off about the EMP-style discussions is the sheer lunacy of how they're presented. You know, like it's the, well, it's not about solar storms, it's about North Korea launching a missile, but they're going to drop it just a little bit above, but they won't actually take out the capital, they just want to take out the internets, and, and you know, oh gosh, calm down. But like, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's always some of that. Um, but I, but I think uh, the article is well presented in the sense that it talks about there is risk from high altitude impact. There's from from storms essentially creating uh, EMP like uh, uh, results across infrastructure, and it accurately captured that the electric system in the United States, which is usually the the focus of these articles, has actually put a lot of research, development, uh, preparation, et cetera. It will never be enough. For the people who believe this is the existential crisis, but over the last decade, they've done a significant amount of work, and I like that the article talked about that there's not a lot of available data. So it's not it's not as if people are ignoring a problem. It's you don't even know if what you're doing is addressing the problem just because of the lack of insights and data on this. But we're doing something and we're trying to be proactive. I think that's really sharp. The the open ended question is as it related to undersea internet cables, mm. and I think that's a perfectly valid discussion where the electric sector has done a lot to to be ready for these types of events. Maybe ISPs and, and sort of the transatlantic um, internet fiber and cable has not. And again, it goes back to what can we invest to make it sort of a risk reduction that's appropriate with actually having some validation that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where most people get hung up. So long story short, it, it, I don't think there's many serious people that debate the efficacy of the risk and say that, yeah, there's some risk there as it relates to storms and, and solar projections and so forth. 
But I do think most people struggle, myself included, with, well, what do you want me to do against a risk without understanding what I'm going to get in return? And it could you could just waste a lot of resources by looking like you're doing something. I think it's an interesting case study, though, I mean, in risk management, where you have something like this that historically we know has happened but seems to be unusual and yet could be a major event if it did happen. So dialing all of that in, your mitigations against something that has the, you know, those particular aspects uh, seems to me like it could be quite challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've all had a master's level course over the last couple of years that people suck at risk management, right? Mm. So like it's, it's <laughs> like we're, it's not that we're just uh, great at this and we all need to be prepared for black swan events and once in 100, 200 year events. And you got to be prepared for it anyways. And I think we've seen, especially relating to weather and climate and sometimes even cyber where you're seeing, oh, that's that's a very unlikely thing to happen once in 100 years and it happens like four times in like five years. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh man, this is, yeah. okay, maybe our calculations are off. Thousand but, year floods, right? Yeah, exactly. But when you're talking about winterizing an electric system in Texas, and you're saying, yeah, it's a once a hundred year storm, but we know how to do it and we know that we'd be better off. That is a good conversation to have. And it's like, you know what? We need to invest in this. And the climate is unpredictable these days. And we can't have people dying in their homes because we didn't charge, you know, an uplift on the rate to be able to go winterize an electric system. You know, mm. so there's, there's some of those things that make sense. Again, with these kind of discussions, though, I think where people lose traction is what would you like me to do about it so much so that I know it's actually going to return value? And if it's a, hey, we don't know when this is going to happen, we don't know what the impact is going to be, and it's extraordinarily rare, and we don't know how to fix it, you combine all of those factors together, then people start turning off. And and I think what some of the proponents of it sometimes lose out on is that last piece of it's not that people are not seeing the problem that they're seeing. It's that they don't see the resolution. And I think every time you and I do an EMP related segment, <laughs> people emailing me for a week at least after I'm like, you don't understand Rob and the missiles. Yeah. And like, I get it. I <laughs> yeah. really do understand the science behind it. I'm yeah. just saying we don't know how to solve it. So when, and then you ask like, well, how much do you think this how much do you think would be required to put a dent in the problem? And it's like, we need $300 billion to start. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that, is, that is not an early investment. <laughs> right. But so I guess I mean, part of what I'm, I'm, I'm puzzling through in my mind here is to what degree do you fund prevention and to what degree do you fund cleaning up the mess afterwards? In other words, do we prevent the lights going out or do we help people whose lights have gone out after the fact? Yeah, I mean, and this this goes even to the cybersecurity discussion, right? Where everyone's right. always like, "I want to prevent all cyber attacks," and like, we well, can't. And and also, without detection, you don't even know what you're preventing. Without response, you never develop the right detection strategy. You got to do all three: prevent, detect, respond. And I don't think this is any bit different. There's going to be some element of detection of, "Hey, is there early warnings that we can establish that help us prepare?" And, "Hey, you know, have have the appropriate backup plans responsible uh, for the situation." Is there a certain amount of response that we have an idea of what we can invest in to get things going again? Like, there, all of that is fair, and so I agree with you. But I don't know that we know, and it goes back to the, "What are we going to invest?" And we can do as much research as we want, but as Lily's article captured, 
there's not a lot of data to operate on. So it's not mm-hmm. a lack of interest and a lack of research. It's very theoretical for for a lot of these discussions. And again, that's there's that doesn't mean we get to ignore it, but it means we have to be thoughtful in how much we invest in prevention, detection, response. Should it be all three? Yes. Um, and especially if we don't know how to prevent it and we don't actually know what we're doing, then the response plan might be the best course of action. But if we don't know what we're preventing, then I don't know that we're going to know how to respond to it either. So we got to, again, we got to be thoughtful in that. And then we got to look at the other things that we could be using those resources for. Winterizing the electric system, as an example, or redundant pathways as it relates to internet infrastructure, which are going to be useful in a lot of situations. And maybe they benefit this, this situation, maybe they don't. But I, I don't think we can look at investments to be done by countries and their citizens in isolation of the other investments that need to take place. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.